wanted to talk to you about the kind of internal voices because I know I experienced this you know I'm a meditator I do this work you know I've done a lot of unpacking on myself and still you know I'll be with my girls and I'll hear these little whispers sure but also I hear a critic I hear a kind of constant narrative and you talk brilliantly about unpacking these voices in our heads mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could talk to that you talked about that worrying voice how do I identify that versus an intuitive voice you know for example if my girl's on the climbing something too high I'll have this voice which is like she's gonna fall off and smash her head open now I kind of know that's not my intuition sometimes though it can be and I'll jump in and sometimes it's fear it's such a skill and I still you know I find it so hard especially when I'm responsible for other humans you know the stakes are quite high Hmm. how do we do that how do we differentiate between all these different voices sorry very long-winded question no that's a very important question is how do I distinguish between the voice of intuition and the voice of fear and the one distinction that I make is fear which is you know worry is a part of fear fear is prohibitive telling you what not to do right and then Intuition is instructive or affirming. It's telling you what to do, where to go, what to try. The thing is, there's no isolation happening where you're only hearing one or you're hearing the other. The fear is there. It's not going away. And the intuition is there. And the biggest problem that most people have is they can't hear their intuitive voice. All they hear is the fear voice. So what we want to do is we want to somehow turn the volume up on the intuitive voice. And if we can hear the intuitive voice as clearly as we hear the fear voice, then that will give us a little bit more assurance in whatever we're doing that could be aspects of it could be concerning. And it could also instruct us on the safest way to do whatever it is that we're doing, because there could be a method of doing that thing with your kids that's safer than the method that's currently being employed. And so our intuitive voice may lead us to that. And it may not be something we can necessarily see with our eyes, but the intuitive voice may say, ask that person standing over there if they know of a better way to do this. Whereas if you don't hear the intuition or if the fear is so loud, fear might say, well, no, they're busy. I'm not going to bother them. I'm going to look weird, blah, blah, blah. So the intuitive voice, if it's louder than the fear voice for that moment in time, then that could be enough to get you to move towards some sort of progressive action. And that's really what, again, the meditation is very, very world-class at doing is in turning up the volume on what they call the still small voice and making it this loud, annoying voice that you can't ignore. And that's where you want it to be. You want it to be so loud that you can't ignore it any longer. And to get from where we are today to that point, it's going to take a lot of dedication to a practice. It's going to take a lot of split testing, listening to these different voices and seeing which one feels right or the most right. And then you'll start to notice a quality in the voice. One voice makes you feel a little bit more expansive or a lot more expansive. The other voice, when you follow through on that, it makes you feel a little more contracted, a little smaller. 
And that doesn't feel that great to be contracted. You like feeling expansive. And so if you start to follow the expansive voice more often than the contracted voice, then you'll start to see, okay, I think that's it. I think this is the voice of intuition. But the caveat is the contracted instruction is what everybody else is doing. Okay. So you're going to fit in more if you follow that voice, the expansive voice, there's not a lot of precedent (laughs) for people doing whatever that voice is telling you to do. So that's going to make you more afraid, but excited at the same time, which is what I talk about in my new book is, you know, you asked me about inspiration. How do you define inspiration? It's an idea that you have that makes you both excited and afraid at the same time, afraid in a good way. Like it's kind of that same fear of when you go to a really strong exercise class, you know, it's going to be tough. It's going to test you. It's going to be touch and go at moments. You're going to be dripping in sweat by the end, but you know, you're going to feel amazing when you do it because you will have stretched your potential. So that's kind of what the inspirational voice is going to be telling us to move in that direction. So it's going to be full of uncertainty. But again, in the early days, the uncertainty can be frightening, but then you get accustomed to it. And then you actually start looking forward to it because it becomes this really amazing adventure that helps you understand that, hey, I can do a lot more than I thought I was capable of. And that's pretty amazing. There's so much in that that I want to unpack. I think the first thing to underscore is I love it when you said split testing. I come from a marketing background, so that makes absolute sense to me where you go down one route and look at the results. You know, you listen to one voice. Is this my intuition? Is this my fear? So many people ask me that, as I'm sure they do you. I say the same thing. This almost doesn't matter. Just take some action and you'll get some feedback. It's kind of iterative. And I think so often we just seek this answer, don't we? And I think the thing that I love about connecting with my intuitive voice is that it's totally unique to me. No one can tell me what my intuitive voice will say or what's deeply right for me. No one. And that makes it, like you said, exciting and scary. There's this real dualism that I think sometimes we want it neatly tied up in a bow, don't we? Yeah. And it's more like a machete in the wild. You're out there hacking away. There's no bow happening there. You're getting dirty. You know, you're sweating, you're panting. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. You can't see the forest for the trees. That's what being on your path feels like. People have this cartoonish idea about being on your path. Like it's the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz, but no, it's more like you're in the middle of the wild with your canteen, your little water and your machete, and you got to find a water source, you got to find a place to sleep, you know, but you're learning how to read the signs of nature. If you don't know how to do this, then going to a park can be frightening and being in a park for three hours can be frightening. But if you can learn, you know, which trees and the birds, everything is talking to you, everything is sentient. And so being on your path forces you into a level of presence that you won't have if you're in your routine. And so having that level of presence allows you to be able to read the signs of nature and not speaking literally of trees and bushes, but just whatever's around you, there are themes, there are patterns, there are connections that are being played out all around you. And if you're not able to be present within that, you're missing so much rich information about where to position yourself next to take advantage of 
whatever the beauty or the opportunities or the serendipity is in that moment. So it's a really powerful thing to be on your path because you get comfortable in uncertainty and you have a level of presence in uncertainty, whereas everyone else is yanked out of that present and they're into regret. Why did I do this? Or they're into worry. Oh my God, what's around the corner? But you've been immersed in it for long enough to know that whatever's around the corner, you'll be able to adapt to it. It can't happen as you get older versus when you're a young person and everything is kind of uncertain. Mothers with teenagers, they have a heartbreak or whatever, you know, get a rejection or something like that. And it's like the end of the world. And the adult looks at that and goes, well, it'll be okay. You'll have plenty of rejection in your life. You'll get on, you'll move on. There'll be another person coming. It's all okay. But when you're in that age and you don't have enough social maturity to understand that this is not the end of the world, then it makes you afraid of putting yourself out there again. And so that's what I'm talking about with adapting to whatever's around the corner. It's like you have enough experience with it. You know, okay, I lose my job, I'll get another job. It's not a big deal. Can't stay in this apartment, I get another apartment, you know, whatever the change is. And at the end of the day, that's what dictates how much we can thrive in life is not how many resources we have or how much money we have, but the extent to which we can adapt to change, whatever happens. And if we can adapt to change inside, then we'll be able to adapt to change on the outside. And inside, I mean, emotionally and psychologically and and even spiritually. I keep bringing it back to meditation because it's such an important foundational practice for simulating that ability to adapt to the thinking mind. My mind won't stop having these particular thoughts. Okay, well, can you adapt to that? Or are you going to keep resisting it and rejecting it? Because if you can adapt to it, you're essentially exercising your ability to adapt to all change by starting with what's happening in the mind, this thing you can't control, which is the nature of most change is you can't control it. So if you can do it in meditation every day, day in and day out, naturally it's going to bleed over into your experiences outside of meditation. 